Good. Well, we'll kind of uh, try to tailor things. This is really geared for uh, all comers in terms of uh, what we're going to uh, cover, and uh, we'll kind of get into it. Uh, one of the questions is, why me? Why am I here talking to you about disaster relief? And I asked myself that question as I had to put together teaching points and PowerPoints and doing all that. My name is uh, Jim Lindgren. Uh, I'm a, a physician uh, trained and boarded in emergency medicine as well as uh, internal medicine and pediatrics. And hopefully, as long as I don't fail my test next week, I'm actually completing disaster medicine boards as well, which is a little longer process. Uh, I am uh, president and founder of Window of Hope. We're a short-term medical mission sending agency, but we do more kind of methods and process. We do send some teams, uh, but we only do about four or five uh, niche trips a year. And what we do is we go and we kind of help people, uh, particularly local uh, churches or healthcare organizations, to be able to put methods and process together to how to meet the needs of their community. I'm also chairman of the uh, U.S. Standards of Excellence in short-term missions, so best practices is very near and dear to my heart. So this lecture will cover more nuts and bolts of, of uh, kind of how to uh, make sense of uh, doing disaster medical relief. Uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, I think it is, I'll be talking about the standards of excellence uh, in disaster relief and specifically talking about some best practices. So um, they kind of complement each other. This one is focused more on the nuts and bolts. So. Um, that's kind of the why me, and then somehow they wrote me into doing two, two lectures today. So this is a picture um, on the upper left there of us happy because we didn't know how we were going to get across from the Dominican Republic into Haiti. Uh, this is like the day four after the disaster. Fortunately, the borders were open. We had drivers, vehicles. Um, you'll see that we have a, a backpack there behind us. There's several of them stacked up there. Uh, we've got our team in there with our uh, fire captain and our first response team. And so... That's just an illustration of what's going to come later, which is that we need to be prepared to be kind of uh, completely self-contained in certain disaster situations in the early days, um, which may be a little bit different as things unfold. And then, you know, at work, um, on our first full day of seeing patients there, uh, these, these pictures were specifically from Haiti. Uh, I want to warn you, though, because disaster relief, uh, it can be very exciting, it can be a lot of fun. But when I started doing this kind of work, this is what I looked like before. <laughs> and, and this is what I look like now. So just be forewarned that there are some risks in doing disaster relief. And what are some of the objectives today? We're going to review a brief background of disaster medicine, talk about the life cycle of, of disasters. Uh, we're going to go over the disaster paradigm and, and a few kind of condensed points from the advanced disaster life support. Uh, coursework. This isn't a replacement for that, but it is an encouragement to you that if this is something that you want to be a part of, there's some excellent courses in both basic and advanced disaster life support that are offered um, through the AMA, but it's through organizations like uh, I took mine in, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, they actually have uh, grant money from uh, the Department of Homeland Security, so it was free other than getting there and, and staying there. Um, but there are courses that can go a little bit more in-depth about some of this stuff, but I'm actually going to cover some of the high points on that today. We're going to ponder who should be involved in disaster relief and how to engage safely and effectively by the end. Hopefully we'll speak a little bit of the same language, and then we're going to focus some attention on the need for safety and security for those that are engaging in disaster relief, because that's going to come up over and over again. So we can look at the disaster uh, 
continuum, and, and this will be a little bit of a busy slide, so I apologize for that. There's a simpler one coming up. But the disaster incident is right here. All right. I think we're all wired up and ready to go. So in this uh, disaster uh, continuum, keep in mind that this is the disaster right here. And we talk about several important things. The response phase is here, and then obviously rehabilitation, recovery, reconstruction is here. Before that, now the big emphasis is on how do we prevent the disasters, what can we do to mitigate some of the um, outcomes when there is a disaster, and having that preparedness so that when that incident occurs, we're ready to respond. And in a simpler version, um, it didn't blow up too well. It was a little bit pixelated, but preparedness, response, this would be obviously the disaster, and then the recovery phase, and then hopefully as we learn, we can do some things to mitigate that. Definition of a disaster. Well, the Joint Commission for, for Hospital Accreditation says it's a natural or man-made event that suddenly or significantly disrupts the environment of care and treatment or increases demands for an organization's services. A little simpler, uh, an event that exceeds the capabilities of the response. And then because you saw my after picture with the Homer Simpson brain syndrome, it's easier. It's just basically the needs are greater than the resources that are available. That's a real simple definition of a disaster. Mass casualty incident, you think of, we'll look at the bottom one first, multiple casualties. So that's the freeway accident where you have six or seven victims, and maybe it's too much for one local hospital in an urban area, but uh, those patients can be divided up amongst several level one trauma centers. However, that same multiple casualty incident if it occurs in a rural area where the closest hospital is 40 miles, that hospital has just a few beds and maybe has one physician staffing it, um, you can't take all of those uh, casually just to that one spot. That becomes a mass casualty incident. So that really escalates up to that sort of disaster level. It's a little bit different in the states when we have a lot of opportunities for uh, air evacuation and whatnot. Um, but essentially, a, a mass casualty incident is when the healthcare needs are greater than the resources that are available. And you can look at it either quantitatively or qualitatively in that. What are the goals in medical treatment in a disaster? When we're not in disaster mode, the conventional medical treatment is we're going to do the greatest good for the individual patient, the one patient that's sitting right across from me. I want to do the very best job for that patient. But when the needs are greater than your resources, then your goals change, and you want to do the greatest good for the greatest number of potential survivors. That's the goal of disaster relief. Um, in disaster, do we save them all? I threw this in there because this was kind of one of those slides to keep us awake and let us have fun. This says, minor heroic acts, proof if proof were needed that under certain circumstances, smoking still makes you look cool. And so keep in mind that some of the patients that we save are, uh, are uh, a little bit different. And this is particularly true in the United States. I practiced in an inner city emergency department. We have lots of patients that are like this, but uh, just for the lighter side. But in a disaster, do you save them all? We have to look at this from an all-hazards approach. That's one of those catchphrases now in disaster relief, that we're thinking about all the different things that can create a disaster, and then what are all the various sub-scenarios in that kind of a disaster. We won't go through all of them, but if we think about the earthquake in Haiti, what kind of injury patterns are you going to see in that kind of a setting initially? You're going to see traumatic injuries, right? Crush injuries, 
amputations, lacerations, abrasions, burns because the electrical grid gets knocked apart, gas lines get ruptured, um, so people are going to have that type of injury pattern. That might be very different, say, than a, a tornado. There may be some of the same things, but if you're looking at the victims of a of like a mobile home park in tornado, you're going to get uh, a different kind of injury pattern. You might get a lot of very infected uh, or a foreign body infested wounds um, that require kind of a different level of care. So in thinking through that, we can look at the natural disasters or the man-made disasters, you know, uh, war, um, bombings, engineering disasters. You can kind of see that there are various options um, of how we can get in trouble and how we can end up with that disaster incident. If we want to look at terrorism, since we talk about it a lot, I thought we'd put a few facts and figures together. Um, but the data that shows what are the frequency of various kinds of uh, terrorism attacks are here. So firebombing is the easiest. You know, the old-fashioned Molotov cocktail. Uh, you just need some kind of a fuel source, uh, a bottle uh, in, in the simplest form. And obviously, uh, some of these become uh, a little bit more sophisticated um, or devious if you want to look at it at that. We think a lot about this part of it. NBC is nuclear, biological, or chemical. Think about the anthrax scare that creates a a significant change in our society, even though there was a very small number of victims from that attack. But because that attack was insidious, because we didn't have it figured out right away, it actually changes a lot of way that our entire society operates, if you think about that. The mail service, how you can travel, you know, the, the, the terrorist threat um, that continues to exist today, and a lot of the security that we face is because of 9-11. So if you used to fly before that, you remember you get there kind of late, throw your stuff through, get through the x-ray real quick. Now it takes a lot more work. Now you got to take, thanks to Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, now we all got to take our shoes off. So if I had a chance, I'd slap that guy um, because it's kind of annoying going to the airport now. Uh, some historic examples of disaster. Um, this is, I was, Ted Lancaster wasn't here um, but he's a good colleague from Britain, so I put a couple of British examples in here, um, but the joke won't work since he's not here with us. Um, but there was an arsenic poisoning that took place when uh, some candies were accidentally made with uh, arsenic, and they were sold. Uh, about 20 people died, but there were about 200 people that um, were actually poisoned by it. So that created a need to have certain standards. Um, so that was one historical example. This is a really lengthy one, but again, this happened in in uh, Lancashire, England, so I wanted to put that up there for Ted. So hopefully Ted will listen to the recording or I'll send it to him. Um, but this was one where there was a lot of uh, uh, flammable gas that had leaked up from, from uh, coal deposits uh, into uh, a uh, water valve facility. Unfortunately, they were actually demonstrating this to some people that were there. When they opened the valves, there was a, there was a big flash. I'm not sure what the actual... Uh, cause of the flashpoint was, um, but that in turn, as you see here, caused the concrete roof to fall down on the group, and uh, there was a, a number of dead, including some children that were just actually kind of going there to tour this facility. We think about the Bhopal, India, the cyanide release, and I don't know if you know this, but this was one of the world's greatest industrial catastrophes when a Union Carbide plant there um, released thousands and thousands of pounds of not just isocyanate gas,
but also some other toxins. The official death count is a little bit in, in question. I put some of this here just to kind of remind myself that the government says initially 2,200 people died, then maybe 3,700. They think that there were probably 3,000 initially, and another 8,000 died later because of the exposure. This happened at night. Um, the, the gas was heavier than air, so it sank down into the village and killed a number of people. We don't have a lot of graphic slides here, but it, be, being that this is disaster relief, there'll be a couple that will be like that. Um, but disasters can come from other, other means. You remember the Rodney King uh, incident in 1992? Maybe some of our students are younger. I don't remember that, and I'm dating myself. Again, I used to look like George Clooney. I don't anymore. Um, but Rodney King had, uh, the, the police had used some excessive force. They um, had a verdict where basically the, uh, the police that were involved didn't get the punishment that the community thought they should, so there were big riots in Watts. Um, that's when Rodney King came out trying to calm the crowd, saying, can't we all just get along? Fifty people died during those 92 riots. So that was a pretty significant event. But we don't always necessarily think of that in terms of disaster terms, but they can take various forms and shapes. Or how about this week, the Carnival Splendor, right? The so-called spam cruise, 4,500 people on board, and for a time they had no working toilets. So if you can imagine that, um, my understanding is it's now in, a, in the harbor in San Diego, and they're probably all long gone off of there. But that required some military assistance to airlift supplies, and so they were eating spam, hanging out, trying to keep a good attitude during that. We can look at some of the deadliest natural disasters in history. This is a little bit of a busy slide as well. Um, but if we look at it, the Haiti earthquake, probably 222,000, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, actual uh, deaths. There were probably at least that many, if not more, uh, immediate injuries. Uh, there were probably 300,000 traumatic injuries. And then obviously you've got the uh, internally displaced people, which is the politically correct term of saying homeless people that need a place to stay. Um, that creates a second disaster later in terms of humanitarian needs or as we're seeing right now with the cholera epidemic because of that. Uh, the 1931 China f uh, flooding, somewhere from a million to two and a half million people died. And there's some other famines and things that are there. What are the cost of disasters? We go back to 1912, is about $150 million, uh, which I was actually kind of amazed with with the Titanic. Uh, this Haiti earthquake, they're kind of giving some estimates, probably 8 to $14 billion. Hurricane Andrew, uh, which was uh, $25 billion, but look at Chernobyl, probably $200 billion. And in fact, the, the most recent superstructure cost $2 billion to put over the top of that. Uh, in some fashion, 50% of the Ukraine is contaminated to some degree by radiation because of that accident. Okay, now we're going to kind of shift into a little bit more of a didactic mode, and we're going to talk about, um, which I kind of put in the wrong order here, but it's the uh, rapid evaluation of disaster, which they call the RED, uh, R-E-D, uh, evaluation. And you'll get a lot of ABCs in medicine, right? Uh, here's another one for you. So... Uh, what they've taught in this uh, advanced disaster life support class is A is awareness of all hazards. So you want to know when you're coming up upon a scene, what are you seeing? What can you see, smell, and hear? Are there people staggering around? 
you see a lot of dead insects or animals, which might be a, a herald that there's something in the environment that could also be affecting people, as well as you if you're driving towards that uh, disaster. And that's where we get back to that safety and security. Um, so we want to be aware of what does the site look like. Is it a building that's collapsed that might further collapse? So if we go in there to try to rescue someone, um, B is for barrier. We want to be uphill and upwind of any potential chemical or biological, radiological uh, type of release. Um, we also want to keep a vehicle between you and the scene uh, and put on the appropriate uh, personal protection equipment because the next one in C is going to be contained. You're going to contain, what, if you can, any spill, although I wouldn't necessarily run up to a 55-gallon drum that's gushing things out if you're not sure what it is. Um, uh, because you want to keep yourself safe. Uh, but also, is there some things you can do if there's a fire that's breaking out? But what else could be there? Is there a sniper that's there? So if we think about uh, 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 an IED attack or a bus explosion in Jerusalem or, or in uh, anywhere in Israel, um, that bus explosion may just be the first, and you don't know what's around the corner or if there's a secondary uh, device or if there might be a sniper. So we want to realize that there are some things that we need to do to keep ourselves safe. D, we'll expand upon because that's going to be the actual disaster paradigm. And then after you've kind of gone through all that thought process, then it might be safe to enter the scene. It also may not be safe to enter the scene. So what is the disaster paradigm uh, in terms of, of what we need to think about? And these are not necessarily chronological, but it covers the, the various facets, and some of it can be thought through chronologically. Some of it applies to every disaster. Some of it may not. But D is like the, the A in the overall global evaluation, which is detect all the risks and hazards. I is for incident command. You remember, incident command is something that's very familiar to our fire captains that travel with us or to police departments. Um, and that's essentially kind of the command and control section where everybody kind of talks and uh, you've got dispatch, you've got everybody working together. It wasn't always like that. In fact, it was the wildfires in California in the 1970s that made it very apparent that, hey, they didn't have the right radio frequencies to talk to each other. The police did their thing. Fire did their thing. Aviation did their thing. And so incident command came out um, in order to be able to get everybody working together. And it's essentially a system uh, for command and control. And that will probably be done uh, by someone else other than yourself, um, but it's a, it's a part of this whole process. S is for scene safety and security. Again, we got to keep in mind that while we have these altruistic hearts and a desire to help people, that the last thing that we want to do is rush in ourselves or take other people on our team who aren't ready for certain risks or we didn't adequately explain those risks to them. S is support. Basically, what and who are you going to need to get the job done? Then we get into what we really think about when we think about disaster relief, which is you know, triage and treatment. We want to go there. We want to see patients. We want to help people. And then uh, evacuation, uh, kind of clearing the scene, and ultimately recovery becomes the next part of that. So what kind of triage systems are possible? There are several um, that have been talked about. One that's very popular um, is the SALT system, which is the middle one here which essentially uh, stands for sort, assess, life-saving intervention, and transport. I have another slide that will kind of go through some of that. That's a very popular triage uh, method. 
Advanced Disaster Life Support uses the mass method, which is move, assess, sort, and send. We'll also kind of go through that here on another slide. Then there's some others, the start, jump start. Uh, there's some others that use different clip-on uh, devices, uh, both for decontamination and, and as well as for who's immediate, who's delayed, um, who's expected, those kind of things. Uh, and they all have their pluses and minuses. The SALT system, and I'm sorry this is a little bit small and kind of hard to display, but essentially step one is the sort. So you've got the walking wounded. They're going to be assessed third. You've got those that can um, wave or make purposeful movements. Um, obviously, if they're able to, to wave to you for help or able to cry out for help, uh, their airways are open, their brains are perfusing, they may have significant injuries. Uh, but the ones you're most concerned about are the ones that are still. They're not moving. And maybe something that you could do very quickly could be life-saving for them, or maybe they're already deceased and uh, you kind of move onward. But those are the first priority. And then the assessment, and this kind of spills over, but in the assessment, what are you looking for? Is there something you can do immediately, like control major hemorrhage, open an airway, for children, consider two rescue breaths. Essentially, if you're an adult and you're not breathing in a disaster scenario and there's multiple casualties that you need to assess, if, if you're not breathing, um, you're probably not going to get care right away. It doesn't mean somebody won't come back and reassess you once you know, the, the greatest number of survivors can be helped. But remember that goal at the beginning? In conventional uh, medicine, we do the greatest good for the one individual patient in front of us, but in a disaster scenario where the resources uh, cannot meet the needs. You have to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Psychologically, that's extremely difficult. And that's another risk that we'll talk about in all of this that we have to tell our teams about and be ready for ourselves. Um, you can con consider chest decompression if they have like a tension pneumothorax, um, maybe an auto injector or other antidote if it's uh, like a nerve gas or an organophosphate poisoning. Um, just depends on the scenario. That would be very common in a military setting when they're on the battlefield that they would have that available. So you assess that. Are they breathing? No, they're dead. If it's a child, maybe consider two rescue breaths. Yes, they're breathing. Are they obeying commands? Do they have purposeful movements, peripheral pulses, respiratory distress, major hem hemorrhaging? If those are all okay, then you look and is it, if it's just minor, they're kind of the walking wounded uh, or what we say the worried well. Those are minimal. We can get to them later. They may not even need care. If, if not, uh, and it's not a major, we might delay them. But if some of these things are happening, um, then that's the people that we need to kind of get to right away. Those are the immediate. If they're basically uh, not likely to be helped by our care, 100% burn, they're still alive, but you know that it's a fatal injury, um, you don't abandon them forever, but in the immediate uh, rapid assessment, triage time, um, they get relegated to, will comfort care you later if there's someone there that can do that. If it's not a medical essential person, um, then they may be able to do that, hold their hand, uh, provide them whatever comfort you have. But the, the, tri the triage priority is doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Now let's look at mass triage. I'll try to be fair to this side of the room. I'll, I'll kind of point over here. Can you guys see okay? Am I getting in your way? So, uh, this is the one that they teach. I kind of like this one easier because this is M for move. So what you do is you go into the scene that's chaotic, right? 
where everything's going crazy and hopefully you have a megaphone if it's loud and you say, everyone that can hear me that needs medical attention, please go over to the green flag or go over, you know, by the light pole or whatever else. And thinking they're going to get quick care and get taken care of, all the people that are kind of the walking wounded will go over there. So now you know that they're not your immediate concern. The next thing you do is say, everyone else that can hear me, wave an arm or a leg. So you see those people that are doing that. They're in, the, they're in that delayed category, which means, okay, well, obviously they're breathing. Obviously their brains are perfusing. Maybe they have a significant injury that we need to get to, but I don't have to get there right this second. What I'm looking for now is let's sort through all those people that didn't answer us when we did that. So we've been able to kind of create two categories very quickly. And we're going to go ahead and put those people into further categories based on you know, an assessment of their ABCs, where that comes up again, airway, breathing, and circulation. And we use this, what they call IDME system, for immediate, delayed, minimal, and expectant. So immediate are those that can be saved with rapid intervention. So we're worried about those people that are just laying there, not moving when we called out. Uh, some of those will be in the expectant category. They're either unlikely to survive or they're deceased already. The delayed category is those have injuries, but they can hold out for a bit. Okay, so maybe there's a fracture. It may even be an open fracture, um, but it's not associated with major hemorrhage at this point or significant uh, you know, limb salvage risk. Um, or minimal, which is the walking wounded. Um, those are the ones that can probably get treated later, or they might even do well without any treatment at all. SEND, uh, the other S, will be transporting victims from the scene if there's a place to send them to. And in Haiti, obviously, uh, early on that was a problem. Uh, later on it became easier. Um, but we might treat and release at the scene if we have enough personnel. They can start taking care of some of those minimal categories. Maybe transporting them to a hospital or other secondary facility. And secondary facilities are important for those patients that maybe they have some medical needs, urgent care kind of things, um, but you don't want to jam up the hospitals that can do real high-level care capacity, like a tertiary facility. So you want to funnel those folks off. Think of an urban disaster here in the United States. Um, there was a sarin gas attack in the Tokyo sub subway. Do you remember that? Um, most patients arrived at the hospital not because EMS took them, but because they got there on their own. Subsequently, 30% of the healthcare staff at the closest hospital got symptoms of sarin poisoning because there was no decontamination that was done because they didn't even know that there was an attack or these patients were coming. So we have to realize that the closest medical facilities are getting overrun. So having secondary facilities to kind of offload some of those injuries or, or medical needs um, that can be done in a simpler level would be great to have so that the higher level of care doesn't get overrun for the patients that really want to be there. And obviously we need to make arrangements uh, for taking care of the, the deceased. Um, and again, the expectant patients, they may or may not um, need a lot of attention, but you need to comfort them. So here's our little kind of break, maybe kind of stretch a little bit if you want to. Uh, we go over a lot of things here. Um, if you get unruly, this is what happens. So I like that sign. Okay, rapid assessment of needs. So now what we're going to do is shift gears a little bit and talk about when we get to the disaster scenario and we're thinking about the big picture community health needs or, or what's important, these are some of the priorities that were put forth even in the health cluster 
and some of the other clusters uh, uh, from OCHA in the Haiti situation, which was shelter first and foremost. Obviously, people need to be protected from the elements. Uh, potable water, potable water, however you want to pronounce it. Food, sanitation, medical and health care, which we always think about first because that's what we do. Um, but a lot of people will do pretty well for a while if they have these other four. But then there's something that really should be level zero. And what, what is it we keep coming back to on risk and safety? And so zero, the very first prior, priority is going to be security. So there were several of you that were here um, that were working in Haiti. And I don't know how early you got in, um, but did you guys see some of the security risks that were there? If you were there early, uh, if they're real early, even the airport got overrun. Um, if you were there when food distributions were taking place, uh, that was not a place to be. And I've got some stories to, to share on some of that. Um, but we want to rush in and help, but we also need to make sure that our own safety is an issue uh, and the safety of the people that we're taking into these situations. So is it safe to enter? You're going to think very differently about looking at a sign like this, uh, but quite honestly, some of the places early on right outside uh, in Port-au-Prince were just as dangerous for you if you didn't know what you were doing or didn't have the right people to go with. So can we name this bird? Remember the canaries that used to hang out in the mines that would be like the early warning device for the miners that maybe there was some you know, toxic gas and not enough oxygen in the environment? Well, we have people in missions that do the same thing. They rush in where angels fear to tread. There was a story that my friend told about a family that was traveling in South Africa. It was a mom uh, and a dad, a two-year-old little boy, and then the uncle was in the car. And as they were traveling along, they saw these beautiful mango trees, and the dad pulled the car over to the side of the road and said, hey, you know what? I want to go grab some of these mangoes. I'll be right back. And several minutes passed, and dad didn't come back. So the uncle went and looked for him. And several minutes went by, and the uncle didn't come back. The mom's like, i got my two-year-old here in the car, but I'm going to go see what's going on. Well, that two-year-old was found in the car crying by passers-by. And eventually, when they looked and found these guys, uh, mom, dad, uncle all died from the same black mamba that was protecting that mango tree, and they're extremely aggressive snakes. Uh, and so what we have to realize is, yeah, Bubba fell into the vat at the factory. We might need to rescue Bubba. But what are the risks of me going into that vat? You know, is there hydrogen sulfide gas? And I'm going to go down just like Bubba did. Is there something else that can happen in a confined space that maybe we need to think about? Um, so those are the things we need to think about. So I've got a little thing here talking about Paul and Jim in Haiti. So I'm hanging out with my buddy from another relief agency that does food and water distributions. And we're behind a, a Jordanian UN contingent, a big truckload and some Jeeps of, of the blue helmets. And all of a sudden, they jump out of the vehicle, and they pound on ours, and they're like, back up, back up. So we backed up, and they turned around, and they're all heading a different direction. It's kind of odd. Then we look up, and what we see is a sea of Haitians running as fast as you can. When I say a sea, I mean hundreds and hundreds of Haitians that are running because somebody had the great idea of doing a food distribution right in the middle of this block that we were, in the, that we were at, and it wasn't a safe place for us to be. So fortunately, Paul was a good, aggressive driver, and he, he tore out of there. Um, motorcycle taxis, um, uh, there's a safety concern there because you're jumping on the back of a, of a motorcycle, which 
maybe some of us in this room have done, and it's not very wise. Sometimes it's the easiest way to move around. Or what about driving, whether it's Port-au-Prince or South Africa, where you have to sit on the other side of the car and drive on the other side of the road. Those are safety and security concerns that we get into when we're going to different environments that we have to think about. And every disaster is different and has different risks and needs, so we need to think about that. The nice thing for us is if we know some of these concepts, when we go to this disaster scene, we look at what the other people are doing because they might help us know if it's safe for us to be there too. Um, So you kind of observe and see what's happening because people are always kind of rushing in. And if the USAR teams are in there doing search and rescue and they've got pretty good security and safety and there's some military people around, maybe it's pretty safe for us to do that. But those are things to think about. You know, what are the scenarios? We want to go over and we want to help. So we're going, we're getting on an airplane, we're going to go over there and help. And uh, we may not be used to some of the risks that may be presented overseas. Or what are some of the risks and needs that we might see in, in a flood? You notice these guys all have life jackets, they've got a boat, they probably have radios. Uh, so what are the things that we're going to need to think about? We have to do these risk assessments in our mind. Here's that Israel bus bombing that we're talking about. And let's think about for a moment, okay, we're here at the scene, we're doing all of this stuff, but what's this vehicle and who's over here? Who are all these uh, bystanders that are there? There are risks in a terrorism environment where there may be secondary devices. You go over to help a patient that's already dead, you pull back his body, and there's a bomb underneath him. So you have to keep these things in mind. Now, not all of us are going to be in that austere of an environment, um, but but we may find ourselves doing that if we're doing disaster relief. And we don't want to discourage you from doing that, but we want to keep you healthy and safe. And we put up these dramatic photos and say, are you really called to do disaster medicine? Because there are some scenarios that we don't like to think about. Uh, I always joked in our, uh, uh, in our emergency department, we have this big steel cabinet, and it says Palo Verde on it because we have one of the largest nuclear plants um, in the world. I think it's the largest in, in the country that sits you know, not that far out of our urban setting. You know, it's probably 40, 60 miles down the road. And I always joke that if I got a call from the ER that says, hey, can you come in? We need all available personnel. And, well, what's the scenario? And if they use the word Palo Verde, I was going to not be available to come in because we always worry about radiation risk, which in actuality are probably not as great in, the, in some of the scenarios as we think, but other things may be. So we want to do disaster relief, but some of those situations are we really prepared for them? Do we have hazardous materials training? You know, do we know, you know, what what uh, uh, a level C or a modified level C versus a full level A suit where you have uh, scuba gear inside and full vapor coverage and all of that? Are we prepared with antidotes in case we're seeing nerve gas agents and some of those things? Because remember, some of the places that we go to may have leftover munitions and other things that are there. And they're finding them even on the eastern seaboard. I don't know if you've been reading that uh, this week, but they're finding kind of some old like mustard gas canisters that were just kind of pitched over. Um, And so now they're trying to figure out ways of kind of reclaiming those things because um, some of that is actually surfacing and and those vesicants aren't very good for us. Again, we talked about uh, incident command, but this is just another example of are we really prepared to be in this kind of an environment um, or do we need to have some specialized training to do that? So another another one for lightening up, foreign aid. When you take money from the poor people in a rich country and give it to the rich people in a poor country, because we all know that disaster relief 
and the monies that get sent sometimes don't always trickle down to the patients, and so um, we want to avoid this scenario. So what are the ways that we can participate in disaster relief? Uh, relief? Well, you can pray, because I'll tell you the things that we accomplished in those first two weeks on the ground in Haiti, and we were there um, present on the island on day four, seeing our first patients on day five, um, and that we were sustained because of the prayers of people, our ability to actually get there, to be taken care of, to have a safe, secure place to work, um, and give funds and supplies to those that are requesting it. Make sure that it's people that are going to actually do what they say they're going to do, or they're a well-connected organization um, that you know is able to pull those things off. Or maybe you want to actually go and join uh, an established, well-connected sending entity, go work on the field. What I try to explain to people, and this is some of the best practices, is at the very onset of the disaster, when you've never done this before, is probably not the time to launch your new ministry. Now, you may launch a ministry out of your experiences, but you're going to be far better served to be with a with a bona fide organization that has the contacts on the ground to be able to keep you safe and and get you where you need to be. So what kind of different ways can we actually work in disasters? Well, in that early part of that, you remember that disaster life cycle, maybe you go in as a first responder. Maybe that's what you're well suited to do. We have the ability to get somewhere quickly because we're a smaller organization. What we aren't good at is being able to send team after team after team because it's not what we do, but there are other organizations to do that. So we were actually tasked uh, by a larger relief agency to not just do what we do, but also to be their disaster assessment team, set things up so that when their, um, when their folks could get there a couple weeks into the disaster, they could actually take over that part and send in the multiple teams because we were able to do that part of it. So we each have different roles. Maybe you're there to do assessment and help with methods and process. So we went in there and tried to work with World Health Organization um, to be able to kind of work through the process of how do we share capacity and capabilities of the field hospitals or the other uh, um, medical missions outreaches that are there because you might receive a, a pediatric burn patient here and you don't have the ability to take care of them. Where can we send that patient? And early on, there were no communications going on in Haiti. There were no cell towers. All of that stuff got destroyed. So trying to develop those systems and methods and process. Or maybe one of the great things is community health uh, evangelism or education. We find it very helpful in, in these uh, tent cities, the internally displaced persons camps, as you'll see them, IDP camps, or in flood scenarios where basically poo and water mix. It's always a bad combination. But going in and teaching people how to wash their hands, how to boil their water, how to prepare food. Very useful information. You can do it. Uh, there are a number of organizations that have booths here uh, with the, in, in, that are exhibiting that have uh, water treatment processes or materials. There's the Chain Network uh, that, uh, that Stan and Terry um, are here. And there's other education that takes place that's a little bit you know, more in-depth than what we can cover when we're looking at the big-picture disaster relief here. But there are some other things. Or maybe you know, practicing what you're trained to do on the ground working in that environment. So there's some different scenarios you can work in. So, but know the risks. So the early days in Haiti, there was no security. There were no flights. At, at, for a time, the borders were closed. There were no phones. There were a few days there where we had no fuel. So actually getting to places we were carpooling in one vehicle, siphoning diesel off of whatever you could, and then patients couldn't get anywhere or even get to see you. Um, There was limited water and food supplies. You may go somewhere and find yourself 
in over your head. I mean, are you really ready to be fully self-contained? Do you have, you know, two weeks' worth of dehydrated food and water treatment uh, uh, devices, filters, uh, other methods? Are you able to set up a little base camp to take care of yourself? Do you have satellite phone capabilities so that you can get that? Because you're not going to be able to dial 911 because nobody's going to come to help because that system just doesn't exist, nor does the communication exist. So we need to know what the risks are. And then know our motives. Am I going because I'm called or because it's exciting? You know, why are we doing this? I can tell you that we hadn't worked previously in Haiti, but God broke my heart, and for two days all I could do was cry after the disaster, and I didn't know a single Haitian person at all. So it became very apparent to me that we were supposed to engage, and and we reached out, and uh, we had the partnerships that wanted our help, and uh, and that's when we pulled the trigger and we went. So you have to make sure that your motives are right. Um, do, do I have something to offer or will I become a burden? Am I going for me or for them? Because if you're not able to be fully self-contained, you're another mouth that has to be fed or that needs water or needs a place to, to lay down. And if you have uh, essential resources that you can provide and you're you know, ready to take care of yourself, then that may be great. But keep those things in mind. Am I committed to the short term, the long term, the initial relief response or the recovery phase? Because what we decided was we were going to help in the initial response and do methods and process in the meantime. And then when everybody forgets about Haiti again, we're committed to pick up the slack later on. Because there's this window period where lots of people respond, um, but that goes away as well because there's, there's that whole fatigue factor that comes in with disasters. Ask yourself, am I taking unnecessary risks or putting others in harm's way? Am I or others prepared for the psychological effects of massive suffering and limited resources. And I saw a couple of people get really messed up in the head because of the vast amount of trauma they saw. As uh, you know, ER kind of people or, or surgeons that are used to seeing lots of wounds and those kind of things or, or bad smells because there's lots of infected wounds, um, that part isn't an issue, but there's a lot of it and there's a lot of suffering. But what about the pastor that comes down with his team? who I saw just really messed up because he was going down to help keep his guys going. They were all surgeons, so they were they were cool with it. But he was pretty messed up, as well as another retired OBGYN doc that I worked with. Um, think about that. This is a picture of a, of a patient in the Sudan clinging to the, obviously, the Western aid worker. Are we prepared to pull ourselves away from that person? Or was it even fair for us to be there in the first place when we couldn't really change their reality for the long term. So those are some of the the, uh, psychological, ethical, moral questions that we need to ask ourselves. So what are the take-home points? Prior to engaging in disaster relief, be fit and in good health. If it's going to be an austere environment, if it's going to be super hot like Haiti was, dust blowing all over the place, Um, if you've got super bad asthma and you get out of breath real easy, those are things you need to think about. Um, so try to keep yourself in shape if you're going to do disaster relief. And we're actually putting together some requirements, physical training kind of retri- requirements for some of our first responders to make sure that they're out there you know, running, working out, those kind of things. Be involved because you're called and because you're ready. Prepare. Do the basic or advanced disaster life support classes, things like this class. You know, Mentorships with other organizations are good ways to prepare. But make sure you have a network and support system identified. And again, we say that disaster incident isn't the time to launch a new ministry. And team safety and security always comes first. Because a lot of the team members you're going to take there may not understand all the risks or be prepared for that psychological um, 
impact that can take place. And what are you going to do if that happens? So you have to have those contingency plans in mind or pick people that are going to be able to bear up under that. Don't become a part of the problem. Be self-contained, fit for duty. Um, be prepared for the worst, but pray for the best. And so this is the picture, and I'll have to ask their permission because one of the people we were working for at the time was Mercy Ships, obviously Window Hope's my organization. This is the night before I went home after the first deployment that was there because I knew uh, my exit strategy. I knew the day that God said, you're done for this trip. We went in a couple other times. Uh, but for me, I was very satisfied because I felt like we did what we were supposed to do. God actually accomplished amazing things because just as they mentioned last night in the plenary session, apart from God, we can do nothing. But with God, all things are possible. And so as we just followed his leads, he opened doors and we did. You wouldn't even believe me if I told you the opportunities that we had, driving colonels around and going in and out of some high-level meetings at the embassy um, with some of these colonels that are that got sidearms on them and the various things that happened just because we were where we were supposed to be because God called us to do it. And so that's why I encourage you, if, if you're into disaster relief, that's great. I just want you to do it safely. Um, but is it mission accomplished? No, not really, because there's still a lot of needs and there's still new problems that are surfacing. Thanks for staying awake. And I think we finished just a couple minutes early, so if there's any questions or some comments, um, now's the time to fire those off. Uh, I have a question, maybe for translators. Uh, yeah. Initially, um, finding those on the ground, our partnering in, in country, how do you, you suggest Well, that's why you really need to work with someone that works on the ground consistently. And that's where building these networks or going with people that have those relationships are important because we ended up working through about three different partnerships uh, that all worked out of one compound on the ground there um, where we could base ourselves, help them, but also reach out from beyond that. So we worked with people that work in Haiti full-time um, that have the, the Haitians on their staff that could assist us uh, for instance, one of the uh, church compounds where we went to to do clinic, um, we essentially had a, a fire captain at the door along with a, ha- a big Haitian guy um, that could speech, speak Creole and French and English. Um, and the two of them together worked on who gets in and who are those people that we just don't have the capacity to take care of. And there were those. There were the spinal cord injured patients that we didn't have ventilators or the ability to take care of. We just didn't let in to the doors. And it's one of those horrible psychological things you have to deal with. But you have to be working with people on the ground that that can support you with that. And so this is a good way to build those networks is kind of hanging out here and talking to people, getting to know people. um, And you'll be surprised. You know, it's, it's the handiwork of God and the fingerprints of God that are on those, you know, meetings where you might meet somebody today that's from, you know, Africa, and, and two weeks from now, there's a need, and they know you, they know what you can offer, and they contact you, and, and uh, you know whether they're good people because you can see the kind of fruit that they bear, and you get to know them through these kind of forums. So this is an excellent way to do that, and we've worked with uh, another partner in Guatemala this year that I met in these kind of meetings, and I knew that uh, they had the the system on the ground that we were comfortable working with and we could help them with with the relief efforts. So hopefully that helps answer it a little bit. Yeah. Do you think anybody with even mild asthma has any business in Port 
Well, probably now it's a lot different, but early on, you think about 9-11 and all those pictures of the dust when the Twin Towers came down. Um, that was a small amount of debris compared to the kind of debris that took place. Was it 25 million cubic yards of debris that was there? So that was just kind of an example, but it's one of those things to think about that uh, certain environments are going to have different risks. A flood uh, environment is obviously going to be different than a volcano eruption, and so respiratory kind of health is something to think about in those kind of settings. Um, so this year when, uh, what was it, uh, Volcan Pacayo in uh, Guatemala erupted right after the flooding that took place, and then they had a big mess, um, those are some of the situations that, that take place and that may affect health. So, but, you know, if you're well-controlled and you take your medicine and you're compliant and you're on a medical team where people can take care of you, then that might work okay. Uh, yes. Uh, unfortunately, I had to have a cortisone injection in my back a couple weeks ago. And so um, trying to be a compliant patient, they suggested I not be in that kind of a setting for a few weeks. Um, because of my immune system be affected. But we are in contact with our partners on the ground, and we're actually we're focusing now more on uh, capacity building, so going down and training how do you get IV access, for instance, in, in dehydrated cholera patients, because it's not the same as just being able to pop an IV into somebody that's, that's healthy because, you know, they get dehydrated very quickly. So going down and teaching some advanced uh, access techniques you know, interosseous, being able to take some of those kind of things down is going to be more of our emphasis in training Haitians and Haitian healthcare workers to do that. Because ultimately, in the relief part, we can come in and, and, and provide some resources, but ultimately you want to avoid paternalism and dependency. So the goal is to move into training and equipping, you know, the people that are there to be able to sustain the, the relief effort. Any other questions? Yeah. Would you briefly summarize the component Yeah, essentially the basic disaster life support goes over a lot of the things that we covered today, and it's really two days' worth of material. The advanced will kind of put a little bit of frosting on the cake, but it's mostly the uh, training scenarios. So you're going to go through like a mass casualty scene um, where you're going to be taken in, like in Jackson, Mississippi, for instance. They take us in in a vehicle. There's sirens going, there may have a helicopter landing, there's a lot of noise, and you have to figure out how you're going to manage this scene. And they've got patients that are wandering around, and you have to sort them out and work as a team to do that. They'll teach you about the Mark I kits, you know, antidote kits. Um, there's a sim uh, center portion where you go in, and they'll give you scenarios like a, maybe a nerve gas agent. You have to resuscitate the, the mannequin and try and get them back, or maybe it's another scenario. So there's uh, various stations that day that helps put all of the didactic stuff in the basic lectures into actual practical use, and that's what that third day is about. The whole thing is about a three-day course, um, and it's a lot of fun, and there are grants available. Some, some uh, locations charge for it. We're trying to actually put one together in Phoenix, but it's not yet complete. So I would highly recommend just checking. Um, you can just do a search. Um, and there's a whole website that has a schedule on it and everything. So just do disaster life support, and I can't remember the URL off the top of my head, but you can go in there and there's, you know, they'll tell you who's offering training and when. And uh, I really like the, you know, the Mississippi One DMAT team and the people from 
from the university hospital there that were running it, so I'd highly recommend that one. Other questions? Otherwise, feel free to leave if you need to. We've got 10 minutes till the next session. And uh, thanks for hanging in there, you guys. You were great. <laughs>